regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to the 12th episode of Datacast. Uh, today I'm on the live with Jim Leach. He is a data scientist originally from the north of England, but now based in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, after studying chemistry at university, Jim joined the consulting firm KPMG and began his career as a data analyst. He later returned to university, taking uh, a sabbatical year to study for an MS in Business Analytics at Imperial College in London. In his work, he is a passionate R user and developer and enjoys thinking about data visualization and how to communicate effectively using data. In his free time, he enjoys board games, music, cooking, and uh, being outdoors. So Jim, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first question I have for you, uh, let's go back to your days in college. So you, you got a bachelor degree in chemistry at um, UCL, right? Uni University College of London. So yes, um, right. what about chemistry that, um, you know, got you interested in the first place? So I think when I was at school, I, I, I felt that I was kind of interested in science and I was also interested in, um, in history and politics. So in my last couple of years at school, I was studying both history and politics and than science, so chemistry and physics. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of thought, I think I could imagine myself, you know, if I was going to go to university, I thought I could probably see myself studying either history or, or maybe chemistry. And uh, then we had a, um, I suppose, a careers talk at school um, from, I can't remember if it was one of the teachers or someone external, but, you know, basically they said um, not enough people are studying sciences. Mm -hmm. um, in the UK at that time, like we need more people to study science. Um, here's all the kind of interesting jobs that you could do if you have specifically done something scientific, which you know you would never be able to do if you hadn't studied a science. Um, and you know, also the the good news is that if you do study science, lots of the lots of other jobs um, which maybe are not in a scientific discipline, you're still going to be able to get into those because science is going to teach you, um, or is going to make you have kind of, you know, either analytical skills or uh, mathematical skills, you know, so on and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so probably the job market for you is going to be a bit broader. So at that point, I thought, okay, well, I'm kind of interested in both of these things. So uh, so I'm, I'm going to focus on chemistry. I see. And um, let's, let's go a bit deeper on that. So in your opinion, like, what are some of the most valuable skills that you got out from studying chemistry that you have used throughout your career? Yeah. Um, I think it's probably a bit of a cliche, or at least lots of people have mentioned it when I've talked about chemistry in the past, but I think chemistry gives you a, um, 
kind of an analytical mindset. So mm-hmm. lots of the studies I did, you know, as a chemist are focused on, well, you know, here's this problem and, and what can we do to understand that problem and how can we test things around that problem mm-hmm. and, and how can we structure all of that work in a sensible way so that we can kind of pick it up in the future, mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably the, I think that's probably a fair kind of judgment of chemistry and is probably what I took from it most. I see, I see. And uh, so so after finishing your undergrad, now you you begin your, your first career as a data analyst by joining uh, KPMG UK back in 2012, right? So um, yes, that's right. Yeah. For let's say for for the audience who are not familiar with KPMG, can you give a brief background overview about the company as well as the reasons that made you choose to work there? Yeah. So um, KPMG is one of they call them the big four. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the four largest um, accounting firms in the world, or accounting and professional services firms in the world. So it does uh, lots of accountancy work and lots of uh, consultancy work as well. Um, and so if people have heard of companies like Deloitte or PwC, um, KPMG is you know similar to them. In terms of why I joined KPMG, I suppose, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I didn't really have at that time a strong reason why I was picking KPMG as a, as a company. I felt that I kind of wanted to do something sort of like vaguely technology related. Um, but I knew that I didn't have at that time, you know, I, I didn't have any kind of, let's say, programming skills, so I wasn't going to become a software developer or something like that. Um, and so I'd applied to a number of jobs. And I think basically KPMG was just, you know, the first program that, that made me an offer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think probably at the time it seemed like a very friendly place to work and the, you know, the application process had been, um, Maybe fun is the wrong word, <laughs> but uh, but you know the people I've met throughout that process, I think probably um, gave a very good impression of KPMG. I see, and um, I I believe like a big part of your job um, working at, at the firm is that um, is is the idea of like uh, applying you know scientific rigor to um, identify and quantify business opportunities using data, right? So um, like in the first, you know, couple of years as a data analyst, what are some of the major challenges of uh, doing so? I suppose the biggest one is um, time, like, especially in the context of a consulting project. You're often very, very constrained in terms of how much time you actually have to pick apart and solve the problem that you're trying to solve. And it may be that you would, you know, given more time or more resources, like to um, do more things, conduct more experiments, um, go go deeper down, you know, a particular route of analysis that you'd like to test out. Um, and often you just don't have the time to do that. So you have to be quite um, selective with, with what you, mm-hmm. or with how you choose to spend your time. Besides times, like any other, you know, additional factors that you think might be, might be challenging? I suppose there's probably something... Um, around the complexity of what you're able to do um, in, in terms of, especially as a consultant, um, you, you're going to have to explain what you've done to your client. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to have to be able to communicate that in a way that they understand, which you know can be challenging. And mm-hmm. so I suppose 
the maybe the more rigorous you want to be or the kind of more um, thorough you want to be in your analysis and in the uh, calculations that you're making, let's say, sometimes you're going to be doing stuff there that you just are not going to be able to succinctly communicate back to a client as to why you did that and, and how it helps them. It's like, well, you may know as, as the data analyst, as a data scientist, that you know you need to do X, Y, and Z um, to give yourself you know, comfort and, and rigor around what you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, but unless you can effectively communicate that back to the client, it becomes difficult to justify doing that sometimes. And in many cases, just saying, you know, this is something that we need to do um, you know, to be comfortable enough with the results. Mm. You know, that, that's that's usually a fine answer. But you know, that can I think I've probably worked on projects where there's been questions of you know, like, why are we doing this? What are the results we're going to get? How is this actually going to help us to answer the question? And unless you can uh, clearly articulate that, you know, it can be challenging to do some of those things. I see. So, um, so you work for two years as a data analyst and then uh, transitioned to a data scientist role at KPMG and working KPMG in the UK and working there until uh, 2015. So now looking back at this like uh, three years phase of your career, how did you see yourself growing professionally? So I suppose so when I joined KPMG, you know, coming basically fresh out of um, chemistry undergraduate. <laughs> if I'm being fair to myself, I didn't know anything. Mm. I, and I had no real um, practical skills that were going to be useful for the job that I was um, uh, actually ended up doing. So, you know, I didn't, I couldn't program. I didn't really understand about kind of more sophisticated techniques when working with data. So I had to do a lot of study and KPMG was very, very supportive of that. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot on the job and then I was studying you know, outside of work as well and KPMG was supportive of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose, you know, just from like a hard skills perspective, you know, I developed a huge amount in those three years. Um, so I learned to program in R, I've learned SQL, I've learned a bunch of stuff around, um, you know, particular methods, algorithms, techniques, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think probably maybe this would not be unique to you know, consulting or, or, or KPMG, but I think you just develop as, you develop some of your softer skills. So mm-hmm. probably become a bit more effective at communicating and uh, more effective at managing your time and starting to manage other people's time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have you know, better conversations basically with the people that you're working with, whether that's other colleagues or clients, you know, in my particular line of work. So I suppose it ebbs and flows. And, you know, sometimes you will have very, very busy periods and other times you'll be, um, you'll have, you know, more time, basically. You'll, you'll have more free time because um, you'll have lots to do. Um, I suppose on average, though, yeah, you're probably working eight or nine hours a day on average in terms of, you know, being hmm. either on site at a client or in the KPMG offices. I see. But I suppose I suppose that average is 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 incorporating sometimes where you'd be working quite a lot longer than that, mm-hmm. and then at other times where you could probably work less than that and and be able to take more time, you know, back for yourself to do studying or, um, well, in you know, in my case, it was to do studying um, or to do you know whatever it was that you felt like you wanted to do. So back in two thousand fifteen, you 
decided to continue your education uh, by pursuing a, a master in, in business analytics at Imperial College of London. Um, what is the uh, motivation behind this decision? As I said, you know, I've been studying a lot kind of in my free time mm -hmm. um, before that whilst, whilst still working. And I did really enjoy doing that studying. Um, and I felt like there were things that I was able to learn during that time that uh, I kind of maybe wanted to go a bit deeper on. And I knew that there were um, you know, other things that I'd like to learn, which maybe I didn't feel like I had enough time to learn. Um, basically, I suppose the short answer is I wanted to study more. Mm -hmm. um, and so I spoke to um, one of my mentors at, at work and um, I said, you know, look, I'd, I'd like to go and do more studying. And I think um, maybe I had the impression at the time that, you know, if you really wanted to be a, a data scientist with a capital D and a capital S, like you needed a PhD. Mm. Um, and so this, this mentor that I was speaking to had a PhD. And so I said, you know, um, you, you know, what do you think about that? And they said, well, given that you've been working for three years and, you know, unless you want to go into academia as and do research, then a PhD is probably probably the wrong um, the wrong choice for you, or it certainly shouldn't be your first choice. So, you know, would you consider going to do a master's because that's going to be the type of thing that's maybe going to give you a um, give you that time to do the studying that you want. It's going to give you some of these skills, and then you know, at the end of that, if you really think, no, I actually really do want to stay studying, um, then you could go and pursue a PhD. Um, but, you know, just diving straight headlong into a PhD probably is it's not the right choice. So maybe think about that. So that's, that was kind of how it came about. Mm -hmm. Any any particular reason why do you choose the uh, the business analytics program at Imperial? <laughs> yeah, uh, purely, I suppose, uh, uh, selfish reasons. So KPMG in the UK at that time, and I think they still do, but they have a partnership with Imperial. Mm -hmm. um, so the business analytics course was a joint course that was uh, like split. Half of it was run by the, or half of it was a, um, delivered by the Data Science Institute that Imperial set up, you know, a couple of years before I started. And then the other half of it was taught by the business school at Imperial. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, the idea was that you would have all of this technical content from the Data Science Institute coupled with um, well, let's talk about how we actually apply that sort of content in a business context from the business school. Yeah. Um, so KPMG had been talking about sponsoring a student to go and do that course. Um, and I know, you know, I think originally they were going to sponsor, you know, just a member of the public, basically, you know, someone who applied to the to the program and Imperial would suggest some candidates to uh, KPMG. Um, so I managed to, I suppose, I was introduced to the people within KPMG who were organising that sponsorship, and they said, you know, after some after some lengthy conversations, they said, look, we can probably actually sponsor you to go and do this if you want to do it, um, you know, which was absolutely fantastic of them to do, of course. Um, and you know, I was really, really lucky to kind of be in that place at the right time to have that opportunity. Um, so it, ultimately, that's why I chose Imperial. There were a couple of other programs I looked at um, in London, but yeah, I, I suppose a combination of the course content and then this sponsorship arrangement was was what yeah. um, sealed the deal, I suppose. Definitely. That, that sounds like a perfect combination. 
learning both the business side and the, and the technical side of the job and then you can essentially like interact with people from different background right which is really awesome because you can you can like diversify you know your your, your knowledge and your skill set so um what were some of the most useful courses that you took during your master so i did i suppose from a technical perspective we did a course on networks and graphs and um Kind of problems that you could solve using uh, the concept of a network or a graph, and um, I suppose that, and maybe it's just because I really enjoyed that course. I found it really interesting. But I suppose ever since I've ever since doing that course, many many problems that I've then encountered after that, I've thought, oh, actually, we could use you know this 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 could be modelled using a graph, or actually this is a graph. Like there's, there's just there's no way around it. This is a network. There's, there's a network problem to be solved here. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting and, and, and has proved to be useful. And then I suppose maybe on the kind of the, the business side of things, we did, um, we did a course in um, marketing uh, mm-hmm. analytics and, and kind of what people do for marketing, mm-hmm. which is, is not it's not directly applicable to my job, but I suppose, you know, again, thinking about those kind of types of problems that people are trying to solve there. And there's maybe been a couple of occasions where I've seen a parallel between the content of that course and then something that I was working on, um, you know, professionally. Uh, so probably those two courses were, were had, if I'm thinking back, proved to be the most useful. I see. Yeah. And I agree, like, graph theory is, is a pretty much a, a very important cornerstone, you know, of, uh, of like any sort of CS-related problem. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. useful sort of knowledge to to uh, obtain. I know that you know, uh, sort of like econometric is, is quite important for for data data scientists who want to sort of solve problem in in like uh, sort of the the business domain because there's a mm-hmm. lot of um, there's a lot of data science problem that re- re- uh, involve like using statistical, you know, regression model, for example, to like solve things like logistic or, or you know, supply demand problem. So um, can you talk more about the importance of learning econometrics for data centers? Yeah, so I suppose, it, it, I mean, probably all I would say is just a continuation of what you've said and that you know, lots of the types of things that you will look at in econometrics, you know, you know whether that is um, linear models or kind of trying to solve inferential problems um, to, to you know understand something about the problem that you are trying to address and, and there's lots of tools from econometrics that are kind of useful for that um, and I think I suppose outside of data science there's probably there's going to be people maybe more traditional statisticians in an organization that you might be working in who are going to be familiar with those methods because you know if people have studied uh, economics before they've probably done some uh, or, or studied business before or studied you know there's a, a sort of broader range of subjects that people will have studied that have probably touched on at the very least some of these economic methods mm-hmm. oh sorry excuse me econometric methods yeah yeah so i suppose you know having studied those as a data scientist and being comfortable with those, it gives you another way to um, interact with you know, other people in the organization that you're working with. And often that can be really, really helpful for, um, 
I suppose, building those relationships and getting people bought into what you as a data scientist are proposing. Because if you can talk about something that they can relate to, um, then you know it, bring, it brings them on board. And then if you can say, well, look, what we're going to do is we're going to take this as a kind of baseline, you know, something that you're familiar with, you know, maybe it's a logistic regression, to use the example that you did. Um, and we're, and we're going to do similar techniques, but which use you know slightly different approaches. But broadly speaking, you know the goal of the the goal of the model is the same. And that that's that's I think in my experience probably easier for people um, to um, both understand and then therefore to kind of get on board with and and become supportive of these tech, the newer or um, different techniques which you maybe are bringing from kind of outside of that economic. Economic trick sphere. So, so during your master, you also spent some time working with um, the data science institute at Imperial College. Um, more specifically, you you provided tutorial session to get students started with R and share your lesson in a blog post. And then, you know, after reading that article, I'm just kind of curious. You know, what what is like the single biggest benefit of teaching materials to other people? that contributes significantly to your data science career? I think when you teach something, or when you try, when you try and teach something, it, it, it probably helps you to, as a teacher, to kind of better understand your own knowledge and, and what the limits of your knowledge are, because people are going to ask you questions that maybe you don't know the answer to. Um, so then, right, well, now, now you've got to go and learn something, but uh, that's maybe not fantastic in that exact moment, but it's, it's, it's helpful for you as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and thinking about how to communicate, you know, what may be a, uh, maybe a more complicated um, kind of idea or approach, you know, if you're talking about um, some sort of data transformation, which is maybe not um, you know, massively obvious for a newcomer in, you know, let's say from, from my experience of teaching, then um, you know, thinking about well, how do we communicate this? Or kind of what analogy can we use, or what mental model can we give people to apply? Well, that's of course useful in helping to uh, explain you know that particular concept to a student. But that thought process and that um, approach to uh, considering how to explain a complicated subject to someone who doesn't understand that is um, you know, that thought process can be applied almost anywhere, you know, anywhere that you have to explain something to someone is, uh, is, is going to be able to leverage that skill. Mm-hmm. And so I think thinking about teaching and, and practicing teaching is, is helpful for developing that. And that's, I think that's an important skill for people to have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I, I want to get a bit meta on that. So you, you recently <laughs> wrote a blog post about your, your experience, you know, attending the Art Studio Company in Austin in which you yeah. discuss some of the principles for teaching. So, yes. and you just mentioned that, you know, all this idea about, you know, uh, developing mental models, you know, uh, and how to teach people and, um, you know, um, things like focus on active learning, you know, keep the student active. Um, personally, I, I follow, you know, I read quite a lot of books and, and like, you know, materials about like, you know, you know, how to think better and, and different mental models, stuff like that. Can, can you share some of your... I guess your your you know observation or some some of those principles with the audience, you know how how they can teach better, how they can think better, learn better, stuff like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I can only really parrot what I've read or been told by other people. I certainly wouldn't consider myself a 
an education expert. Um, I suppose, yeah, in my experience, I, I, I suppose I've delivered workshops or, or taught people in you know, a couple of different ways. One being kind of me doing most of the talking and it's more of a lecture. And you get to the end of it and you usually kind of think, yeah, yeah, that, was, that went well um, because, because you got through your material. But I think when I've done a sort of different type of workshop where it's been much more students working through exercises with, you know, a little bit of um, instruction before each exercise, that's always been more effective. Um, I think, you know, reflecting on how the students seem to respond to the material, I think that the active learning has always been more effective. Mm. Um, in terms of mental models, yeah, that was, that's kind of something new that... Um, that I picked up at our studio conference. Um, you know, that's something that we talked about in the teaching workshop there. I suppose, you know, maybe why that struck a chord with me was because I think, you know, the idea of a mental model took me back to studying chemistry. And certainly in some areas of chemistry, let's say organic chemistry, where you're dealing with um, molecules and whatnot, and carbon based molecules and how they connect together, mm. there's like this huge amount of stuff basically, to learn within that particular field. And you could learn, let's say, a thousand facts about organic chemistry and how, you know, molecule A interacts with molecule B, like how they fit together or when they react together, like what is the chemical process that's happening. Um, and that would be, maybe there's no mental model there, right? You've just, you just remember that as a fact. And I suppose... As a student at that time, you know, an, an alternative approach was to try and develop this mental model of, right, well, we have um, certain bonds within a molecule, and I know, broadly speaking, how those bonds behave. And I know that we have um, electrons in a molecule which are going to flow in a particular way, you know, they're going to flow towards positive charge, or positive charge is going to attract electrons, vice versa. Um, and those are kind of like broad theoretical concepts which you can internalize and use them as mental models when you tackle a new problem. So you can think about, well, if I know how these bonds react together, if I see two new molecules and the question is, um, or I need to understand how they're going to react together, well, I may never have seen those molecules before, but I can certainly start to um, apply the models and apply these kind of theoretical concepts that I have to trying to solve that particular problem. So maybe I think that's why mm -hmm. mental models really struck a chord with me um, and why I can I can start to really subscribe to this idea that they're really useful because I think they are, um, you know, they're the framework that gives a learner, mm -hmm. and I'm including myself in that, you know, as a learner, um, they're the framework that gives a learner, you know, a way to think about solving problems with whatever it is. So let's say within R, we could imagine a mental model around data transformation. Mm -hmm. um, and if a user understands kind of that model, well, I don't necessarily need as, as, as the user of, of a particular tool in R to um, you know, know every single piece of syntax from you know, a particular package. I can, I can have a mental model for um, data transformation in general, and then when I'm trying to do a specific piece of that model, as it were, I can basically just kind of Google you know, how do I do this using, using you know, a particular tool that, that, I've, that I've chosen to use. Mm -hmm. So I think probably yeah, you know, that's kind of why I like mental models. Definitely, yeah. And like these these frameworks, you know, it's like 
it's just like you know like 20% of, of this of this material like will help you like learn 80% of, of the whole problem you know like this framework help you you know uh, generalize you know to 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 yeah, exactly. even yeah. even when you haven't seen things before you know it's it's, it's quite similar to, to what you have to do in data science so you know yeah I, I guess like how you think you can learn a lot from you know how, how do you uh, apply in your day job as well um so um you moved to the u.s and work at the kpmg office in atlanta at the beginning of 2018 um what prompted this move uh, personal reasons um my partner is um has is, is both a uk and a u.s citizen and so we had met in um london mm. um she was doing a master's at the time in london Mm-hmm. And then she moved back to the U.S. a couple of years later to attend medical school uh, mm-hmm. here in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> we needed to make a decision as to what we're going to do. And the decision that we made was, well, I'm, I'm me, Jim, is going to move to America because right? it's mm-hmm. it's that or nothing at that point, really. Um, so yeah, that, that's what prompted the move. So so, um, how would you compare the data center ecosystem in the U.K. versus the U.S.? Yeah, I think you put that in your note before. So far, I haven't seen, I don't think there's anything that I could point to as a major difference. Mm-hmm. It, it's probably about as much as I can say. You know, I think people are talking about the same type of tools, the same type of approaches. Uh, people are working on similar sorts of problems. Right. Yeah, I, I haven't seen massive differences. I mean, at a kind of broad you know, KPMG level, in my experience, no, you know, I think people wanting the same types of work to be done and asking similar sorts of problems. Mm, okay. My personal experience in the UK, um, most of the projects that I was involved in were working with um, the uh, forensic accountants in in the UK. Uh, and so that was sort of like investigations uh, into various um, various acts of alleged misconduct by banks and moving across to the US like I'm sure that work is still going on it's just personally I haven't been involved with that you recently wrote a blog post called um, do the simple things first in which yeah. the main hypothesis is like a complex method is never justified until a simple one has been tried first so um, maybe could you mind you know this doesn't have to be like work related project but more like a you know personal experience or something like that but would you mind sharing an instant of how this has been true uh, just so you know let's say like the audience who want to kind of like you know can 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 get some sort of you know visualization of you know how how they should approach the problem using this sort of like i guess mental models you know do the simple thing first yeah yeah um so <laughs> i suppose the is ne- is never justified. It is probably a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, so, so I, yeah, I, I'm not trying to advocate for never doing anything complicated. Um, I, I suppose the, the the idea I was trying to convey is, you know, apply that scientific rigor, apply that experimental mindset, that that curiosity, um, to 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 all of the projects that people work on. So maybe 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 I can give a couple of. Sort of examples right so imagine that you are trying to um imagine you're trying to predict um the weather or you're trying to make a weather forecast mm. um 
you might you might think, oh great, I'm going to build this. I'm going to build a you know some kind of forecast model. I'm going to look at. Um, of course, I'm probably going to look at what the weather was like yesterday and maybe last week, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to include data on um, shifts in temperature during that time and shifts in wind pressure and changes in humidity, um, and then I'm going to factor in maybe stuff I know about the area that I am trying to predict for. So you know, is it um, is it like a big industrial area or is it uh, rural farmland? Is it mountainous? Is it flat? And you know, there's you can start to imagine there's all these things you might want to incorporate into that forecast, which could which could make it really accurate, right? And you could build a complicated model that, that would do that, and it, maybe that would work really well. But it's like, have you started with a simple model of what was the weather like yesterday, or have you started with a simple model of well, if I look last year on this same day last year, what was the weather like? If I just predict that, how well does that do? Um, and I suppose my point was being, unless you baseline your approach with something that um, kind of maybe seems obvious when someone says it, but um, you know it's important to consider, is that simple approach actually going to be giving you a good result? Because if it gives you a really good result and you find that that's an accurate model, then maybe you don't need to spend time building something more complicated. Yeah, and I suppose um, I, I'm not saying don't try the complicated model and I'm certainly not saying you know if it's if it's you know something that you're doing just because you're personally curious or interested in it then yeah of course spend spend your time doing something um, something you know more complicated or more involved if, if, if you're interested in it if that's something that you're you know passionate about investigating mm. um, but it, you know if you're having to solve a particular problem um, you know to tell someone else an answer um, then Try the simple thing first, because you may be able to tell them the answer you know, yeah. in a in a couple of days with, with yeah. a simple approach. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And 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 unless you unless you know that that simple approach does or doesn't work, then your your complicated approach, whilst it may be great for you to work on, could be overkill. Is basically I suppose the point I was trying to make. Yeah, I understand. Like say if you work on a on a on a business, you know, problem, then you probably like want to look at the you want to be more resource oriented. However, on the other hand, if you're looking working for on like a sort of like you know side project, for example, you you can be a bit more like uh, techniques oriented, right? You you can choose the kind of study you want to work on. Just just how yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think there's yeah, there's a big difference between something that you're doing professionally or to meet a specific purpose for someone else and, and a project that you're doing for yourself for your own curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose. Did that that post was really talking about the former case there. Like if, it, if it's just you doing it because you think it's interesting, yeah, please, yeah, try whatever you want and, and go as deep as you want because that's yeah, that's if that's your what you're passionate about at that point. Then yeah, you should um, indulge that and focus on it. A big part of like data science nowadays is is machine learning. Um, obviously, is is quite a it's it's quite you got a, a huge you know spotlight compared to you know other aspect of the whole data science workflow. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, in your in your experience actually working in the industry, how often do you use machine learning for your project? Um, I, th- I think probably most of the projects I've been involved in have used machine learning or some sort of algorithm, which you could probably call machine learning, some sort of model that you could call machine learning, mm. probably on every project I've worked on. But you're quite right that... Um, it gets the spotlight, but it's not necessarily um, that spotlight doesn't really necessarily represent how you're going to be spending your time. Mm. Um, I think 
I can't remember you know where where the statistic came from, but somewhere I remember reading a year or two ago that you're going to spend eighty percent of your time just preparing data, cleaning data, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and eighty percent is is high in some projects. It probably has been eighty percent, maybe even ninety. Some projects, you know, when we've been lucky, it's been a lot lower. But um, yeah, I think you're quite right. Basically, I, I, machine learning has always been a component of what I've done. Um, huge amounts of my work and probably like the, the majority of, of my work as a, as a practitioner doing things has mm-hmm. been on kind of the practicalities before getting to actually doing something that's could yeah. be labeled as machine learning a lot of people you know have some knowledge about machine learning but they don't have much knowledge about you know that whole process of data engineering data pre-processing which is mm-hmm. like you just mentioned like taking majority of your actual day-to-day work um, as a practitioner Right. So, what are your recommended resources for people who want to learn more on on the data engineering aspect of things? I don't know. I've actually have a resource for it because I learned it, you know, on the job at work. But I think a first step, people should learn SQL mm-hmm. um, and and learn how to work with structured data using SQL because mm-hmm. most. Um, you know, other tools that people might use are Python. Um, the the data transformations are basically just emulating some uh, SQL instruction. There's um, a, a book by um, Hadley Wickham and uh, Garrett Grolmond called Alpha Data Science, mm-hmm. which um, I think is a, is an absolutely fantastic, um, fantastic resource that kind of talks you through. Uh, working with data and exploring data and producing visualizations and reports and so on, all from R. Right. And, and and that's that's a superb book. Um, you know, if 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 any people wanted to kind of read that book or, or learn more about it, there is um, there is a Slack channel, and the Slack channel is called R for Data Science, right. um, which I'm, I'm I'm part of that channel, and uh, you know, people pop up in there. Originally, it was conceived of a people were going to read through this alpha data science book and work through it together. And I suppose you know, that's what people did originally. And, and now it has become a sort of broader uh, R-focused group for people trying to learn some of these foundational skills. Um, I, you know, if anyone is interested, then um, I, I can send you, you know, a link to, to share um, in the description, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the um, there was at least one or two talks at uh, our studio conference where um, that, that community was mentioned and the, the original creator, um, Jesse, uh, I think her surname is Mospitak or Mopitak or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, sorry. But she, she, she spoke about you know creating that community originally. Right, yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that book, Alpha Data Sun, it has been recommended by a lot of people that I talked to so far. So it seems to be like you know like a bible within the R community so i uh... <laughs> well i think yeah i mean it focuses on this set of uh packages and tools for r which kind of have this like nice uh consistent way of of approaching problems um so it kind of it's a it's a great resource for getting started with those and and i think those tools are really great for people to to get get themselves to being being like useful with r mm-hmm. um and and there's, there's a difference between or I understand how to write a for loop in R, or I understand how to, um, you know, read and write data with R, and and then 
something else, which is like, well, I know I can read and write my data in, I know how to make plots, I know how to transform my data, and I, therefore those are things which are useful. But there's a difference between knowing syntax and knowing use, I suppose. I see. And I, and I, and I think that book is really great at making you useful. I mean, along the way, you're going to learn all of that syntax, but um, I suppose it's focusing on making you uh, or equipping you of the skills to be useful. Definitely. Um... And I, I'll be sure to include the link to even to the to the Slack channel into the show notes, so people can um, can um, join and, and take a look at that. Enjoy the the group. Um, at talking about R, what are some of the key developments out in the R ecosystem in 2019 that you're most excited about, given the fact that you uh, just just come back from the conference? Yeah. <laughs> so. Um... There is a there's an R package called Carrot, which was uh, released several years ago, um, and and the aim of Carrot was to try and um, I suppose unify approaches to building machine learning models or statistical models in R, mm -hmm. um, and that was a very very popular package, uh, and it works very very well, and it's a really good package. And the author of that package, or the original author of that package, Max Kuhn, now works for our studio and is developing i suppose the sequel to that package um at the moment it's called um parsnip because uh, he couldn't think of a better name and parsnips are kind of like carrots <laughs> um but but that looks like it's going to be um you know from kind of what they talked about they uh, i would i'm really excited about that you know that kind of it looks like it is going to transform um at least from my perspective, modeling um, in R. And I think this 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 suite of packages that I mentioned a minute ago that people talk is called the tidyverse. Um, like one one of um, one of the things that currently the tidyverse maybe it's an area of weakness is in uh, tools to help you build models. Like the tidyverse is fantastic for working with data, for visualizing data, for generating. Um, things that let you communicate your results back, but that kind of step of actually building your model has always been a weaker component of the tidyverse. And this um, Parsnip package, and there's a couple of other packages that are going to become uh, part of that and are linked with that, I think are really going to fill that um, fill that hole um, or, or you know, start to address some of that hole. Um, and yeah, it, it looks amazing. And the, the, the ideas that they have for... Uh, you know how that's going to work and what the interface is going to be like and how it's going to let you um, use different um, back ends basically mm -hmm. to to uh, solve your model um, but you as, as as the end user you have this consistent front end to, to that tool uh, yeah it looks really looks really cool and I think in terms of tools for interfacing R with other libraries for maybe distributing your code or um, or your processing of your data or building uh, larger or more complex models, those already exist. So there's the Spark VR package for interacting with data and building models in Spark. Mm. There's fantastic connections to um, Keras and, and, and TensorFlow if people want that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the the, the this, this Parsnip package that I'm so excited about is, I don't think it's trying to solve the problem of getting R into production. It's it's trying to 
fill the hole of giving people a unified way to create models. That the parallel that you might draw to Python is probably not a direct parallel, but the parallel that you draw is probably to something like Scikit-Learn. Oh. So, you know, Scikit-Learn has this kind of consistent interface, roughly speaking, for working with models in Python. Mm -hmm. And so far, that consistent interface in R has been the carrot package. Mm -hmm. um, but the you know like the exact syntax of the carrot of the carrot package doesn't um, gel completely with the other tools and packages inside the tidyverse, mm. uh, and so the, um, the parsnip package is kind of a, a reimagination, a reimplementation of uh, the carrot package, um, but in a way that then integrates with this other uh, fantastic ecosystem of, of packages and tools that R has going for it at the moment. What do you think that data science will look like in the next five years? And how do you see yourself being a part of it? It's a, an interesting question. I think in the last few years, um, the title or the description data scientist has been more and more broadly applied. And I'm, I'm, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, I, I suppose, you know, there is no formal definition of what data science means, or at least not one that I've ever seen. Um, and I think, therefore, that, you know, over the next few years, and it's already been happening, is that um, that kind of label of data scientist and who is who's doing data science or who's not doing, doing data science, well, that's going to broaden. And there's going to be more and more people from more and more different backgrounds, um, different places, working on problems in this kind of broad field of data science which i you know i think is a i think that's fantastic right it shouldn't be this sort of ivory tower of academics working on data science with a capital d and a capital s right this is it's it's, it's broader and it's encompassing more people mm -hmm. um i suppose there is there is probably having said that still a distinction between um maybe like practical data science and more um, research-focused data science that's kind of closer to um, academia or to applied research. Um, I think, uh, I remember people kind of joking about it on Twitter, but there was one company recently, um, late last year, uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but they, all of their data analysts basically were rebranded as data scientists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then the, and then all of their current data scientists were rebranded as research scientists <laughs> and you know people i think people were joking that you know well what does any of this really mean because it's all kind of just like vague job titles that no one really has a strong definition for um but i think i think we may see more of that we may see more of a distinction between um kind of this much broader field of, of data science mm -hmm. people working with data addressing problems and more people doing that from more places, from more backgrounds, uh, a more diverse data science, or I certainly hope that we see that. Mm. Um, and, and at the same time, there is, I think, going to be, and, and you know, ideally and hopefully, there's, there's going to be that same diversity in, in a sort of more research-focused uh, community. But I think that there's going to be maybe uh, more of a distinction between practical data science and research data science, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the company that you, that you mentioned, talking like uh, making that uh, change in the title is actually, if I'm correct, it's like Lyft. 
Um, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I read that article and it was quite interesting. I guess they just want to like um, make the make the have have more people apply to to the position just because of the title, you know. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. Yeah, and uh, I yeah, and uh, I I agree with you. Like the the field probably gonna get more specialized with with um, people actually uh, like learning specific skill for like a specific you know aspect of the data science pipeline. You know, people like people who are stronger in like communication uh, might want to do some stuff with visualization. People who are stronger in like analysis they want to maybe doing some exploratory DA or you know people who are stronger at coding they might want to focus more on data engineering so having that that distinction actually gonna help newcomers a lot because they know what to focus on instead of like you know try to load everything at one and didn't really retain much of the information at all so um, yeah I guess you haven't answered the second part of my question which is like how do you see yourself being a part of it? So, like, I guess just like, you know, right now you, you're working at KPMG, but, like, in the next few years, you know, do you see yourself um, getting specialized in something or, uh, you know, or, um, you know, moving somewhere else or, you know, just kind of curious? Mm. <laughs> Apologies for not answering your question. Um, I mean, I, I don't see myself... Um, oh, let me rephrase that. I think I see myself being part of um, what I hope is going to become a, you know, a broad and diverse community of kind of people doing stuff with data in inverted commas. Um, I suppose, you know, I have things that I like doing and, and I have things that I'm, I'm maybe stronger at doing, but um, I think, you know, I see myself kind of continuing to lead teams um, doing, you know, broad Broad types of, of working with data. Perfect. Okay, so at this part of the conversation, uh, we're going to move to the closing segment in which I'm going to ask you uh, three quick fire questions and you yeah. can just give uh, tactical advice for people who are seeking them, okay? So, yeah. the first question is that what are some of the companies that are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? Uh, yeah, so I thought of um, three when you uh, put this to me earlier. The first being um, Spotify. Uh, as I said, I'm a big music fan, and mm -hmm. I think what they've done with bringing people new music has been great. Uh, and then people may be able to guess from what I've said already, but uh, I think our studio are doing a fantastic mm -hmm. job in terms of building tools for data scientists to use um, and making those tools available. Uh, and then the third was um, DataCamp, which I should probably have mentioned earlier, actually, as, as a resource for people um, learning uh, skills in the data science field, so whether that's R or Python or SQL or something else. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, and you know, DataCam they they actually have have uh, their own podcast that I wish I've been following in the past year or so. Which is yeah, it's a good podcast that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second question: um, What is one book that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? And and you. Um, Besides the the R for for data science, you know that they already mentioned. I guess I guess a more more non technical book, for example, just so people yeah, can, can yeah, have yeah. fun, you know, learning learning about data. Yeah. So um, I, I think probably the book that I think about the most is um, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Okay. It's by uh, Daniel Kahneman, and it's about um, kind of like biases and heuristics that we use. So I think he was a um, or is a psychologist researcher basically um, but and, but the book focuses on 
ways people think about things and ways people think about solving problems or how our brains think about solving problems. And um, I think being aware of those heuristics that your brain uses and the biases that your brain might have when it's solving problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, like for me, that's been really useful to kind of have that stuff in my mind, um, thinking about that. So then when you come to solve a particular problem yourself or when you're trying to help someone else solve a problem that you, it's, it's, it's really difficult to stop yourself doing some of those biases or, or heuristics that you use in terms of um, you know, recalling information just because of the way your brain works. But um you know, being aware of those kind of helps you catch yourself and, and, and be uh, more thoughtful and analytical in the way that you're working. Yeah, that, that is really a fantastic book. I, I think I read it like two or three years ago. Um, and actually, like, like it get me interested in that whole thing about like behavioral psychology and like mental models, like mentioned earlier, because that, that yeah, kind yeah. of explored me to a bunch of different you know, um, authors and, and, and books like sort of related to, to, to that book because it has been started by so many different different uh, people and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last question is that imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Uh, so I thought about this one too. I think I would say um, whether it is with, you know, like, an approach to a problem or learning a tool that you want to develop your skills in will be to start kind of simple, um, pick something simple that you can solve and, and gradually get more complicated, get more sophisticated. Um, and whilst you're doing that, trying to retain a sense of um, curiosity and um, uh, an inquisitiveness about uh, what you're doing because I think both of those traits are um, u- useful to cultivate mm. um, and you know kind of help people up. and I suppose then really the, the end is is kind of maybe a bit more motivational which is you know, don't give up because this you know learning learning these things and learning skills or learning theory can be hard mm-hmm. um, you know I know I've certainly hit balls at times in the past where I thought oh there's no way I'm ever going to learn this um, and then in those situations where I've kind of pushed through that difficulty and, and have successfully learned it, you know, it's a, it's a nice feeling when you learn something and you feel confident in, in your knowledge. Um, so, yeah, don't give up. Like, it's, it's, it's okay that stuff is hard because this stuff is hard. Yeah. Um, but, you know, keep going, basically. Certainly. And having that, um, that uh, growth mindset is very important for whatever sort of like learning process that, that you involve with. And uh, especially in this field, that are, that are actually actually critical, you know, especially for people coming from like say non-traditional background, for example, who are not familiar with with technical stuff. Having that sort of um, motivational um, aspect is is is, uh, is as, I think as important as as like the actual technical stuff. Um, so Jim, thanks a lot for you know being uh, on my podcast. Uh, I really appreciate learning about. Um, your work at KPMG, um, uh, your experience starting um, get, getting a master in, in business analytics at uh, Imperial, as well as um, different um, resources that um, you recommend for people who want to really um, start their learning journey in this field of data science. And um, I know you have a, a website, and, and then I uh, will definitely link that in, into the show so people can 
follow your work um, and, and, and your social media channel as well. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, seeing more, more materials from you soon and I appreciate for uh, spending time today. Yeah, of course, it's been really nice to speak to you. Thank you for, um, thank you for including me. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.